Hey everybody, and welcome back to From Complex to Queens, Amazing Avenue's minor league podcast. I'm Steve Seiper, and I'm joined this week by Lucas Vlahos, Ken Levin, and Thomas Henderson. How are you guys doing? Good, good. All right. Better than the Mets bats. <laughs> yeah, those haven't been doing too well. Yeah. Yeah. Not 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 great, Bob. Freaking Kyle Schwarber. God damn, man. Anyway, so promote extend trade. And today is June twenty first, which is the summer solstice, the longest day of the year. Sunrise here will officially be at like five twenty five AM. And sunset will officially be at like 8.30 p.m., so that gives us about 15 hours or so of daylight. So that made me go back and look to see what the longest minor league game in baseball history was. And on April 18th, at roughly 8.30, because there was a delay because of light problems, that literally is the last thing that they needed. Nice. But the Pawtucket Red Sox played a game against the Rochester Red Wings, and at 4 a.m., at the end of the 32nd inning, the game was finally suspended. I'm sorry. 32nd? 32nd <laughs> inning. The International League has, or, or excuse me, had, I should say, um, rules about suspensions. But for whatever reason, the home plate umpire, his rule book did not mention that. So... I mean, I'm not a, I'm not an umpire, so I don't know if he was just doing the right thing or if he was just a dumbass and not saying to himself, like, logically, we need to stop this at some point. But he did not think that he had authority to end the game. So they just kept playing and playing and playing. And they finally were able to reach the president of the International League at, like, 3.30 a.m. And then finally the game was suspended at, like, 4. Oh, my God. 20 for so... Uh, one run in the seventh, tied up in the ninth, tied one-one <laughs> from the ninth until the twenty-first. Rochester scores at the top half, and Pawtucket ties it in the bottom half, and it goes <laughs> to another eleven innings. <laughs> the funniest oh, no. part, though, the funniest part is when they resume the game a couple of days later. It took eighteen minutes to finish. <laughs> Pawtucket walked it off in the bottom of the thirty-third, and that was that. So anyway, so what are we going to promote, extend, or trade in terms of unbelievable feats that happened during this game? I guess we'll rank them in terms of how unbelievable they were. <laughs> First off, we have Rochester pitcher Jim Unbogger. He threw 10 scoreless innings in relief. Next, we have Rochester's catcher, Dave Hooper. He caught 31 of those 32 innings that they played that night. Oof. And last but certainly not least are the 19 fans that stayed for the entire game. It's got to be the catcher, right? Catching, yeah, that, that's that's like insane. Catching 30 innings? <laughs> 51. At some point, I'm just rooting for the game to be over. I'm just like, look, I don't care if I lose. Just, I'm trying to go home. <laughs> I'm surprised that nobody, none of the pitchers at any point just said, screw it, I don't care anymore, and just, like, started throwing meatballs. I know I would have. <laughs> just be like, all right, all right, guys, it's time. It's time to go. <laughs> I'm just going to groove everything down the plate. Were you a Hit good it. game? No, you weren't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's truly crazy. Mm-hmm. And those 19 people that stayed, they got, like, lifetime passes to go to games in Pawtucket. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, if if you're there, you committed to the bit so long of staying that you're like... It, exactly, exactly. I feel like more people should have... If, I mean, if you're already there... Why are you going to leave? At, at at a certain point, you must realize that something historical is going down. Like, Why would you leave? Yeah, exactly. It It... it jumps over from being this is wild and too bad to being like it's the 20th inning let's see how long this lasts it is crazy stuff all right so before we move on one more thing about that game um Pawtucket DH Russ Larrabee uh he went over 11 oh. <laughs> 
and struck out seven times. Nah, he got to get a week off after that one. Yeah, that made him the the first player ever to strike out that many times in a single game. But that record has since been broken, and there is a player out there who has struck out a record eight times in a single game. Any ideas who that guy might be? Absolutely not. Is he a major (laughs) leaguer? Um... He has some major league playing time, yes. Oh, but I okay. would not say he is a major leaguer okay. yet. I got you. I got you. I have no idea. No clue. What yeah, do you call I mean, that if a um, if a golden sombrero if the platinum sombrero is four strikeouts? A double platinum, I guess. I don't know. Titanium, uranium, <laughs> uh, diamond. I don't know. I mean, what's, I, the, I, uh, what's the element from Avatar? It's it's, it's a uh, rotanium or something. Uh, oh, we should make like the adamantium yeah, sombrero. What <laughs> Wolverine has <laughs> the adamantium sombrero. Well, on Friday, July fourteenth, twenty seventeen, the Lexington Legends, which were then an affiliate of the Kansas City Royals, they beat the Delmarva Shorebirds seven to five. Oh no! In a game that went twenty-one innings. And Lexington, then Lexington legend outfielder Khalil Lee. Oh, wow. One oh. for nine. Wow. <laughs> they walk and eight strikeouts. Having seen him in the big leagues this year. I, I believe, believe that. that. Yeah. yeah. I believe that for sure. Mm. Look, if anything, if just remember, kids, you could strike out eight times in a game and also make the major leagues. So never give up on your dreams. Factual statement. Yeah. Clearly is sure good at striking out, so. Yeah, it was, it, has been very good in AAA, but. <laughs> it's strange. Like, we saw GIFs, and it's pronounced GIF, mm. of the new swing in the winter. Um, but he's hitting for. He's like no additional power, and he's striking out just as much as he did in Double A for the Royals in 2019. Like it's an it's oddly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, That's magic. Now I do wonder if, it, if maybe this is a situation where it just needs a little bit more time to stick. But yeah, I mean, I honestly have no faith in the organization. Well, prior to this new administration, which is very similar to the old, old administration. Point being, the Mets haven't been very good at developing it. Like, when was the last time they had a swing change that actually worked? I mean, Pete Alonso? Yeah. yeah. They didn't really, how much, they didn't like totally revamp his swing. I mean, they kind of did. Yeah, they did. It's pretty different. Like, Neil, his, Pete's Florida swing is like wild now. There was like a, like, like, look at Joe Gennord. And that's basically what Peter wants. All right, all right, fair point, point eight. Yeah, like, yeah, fair a point. A little better, a little better than that, but. Hey, that's I like the like extreme version. <laughs> it, it feels like, I mean, of course, it's difficult to say this with any certainty, right? Because we're obviously hyper-focused on one org. But every time we hear about that, some dude with a swing change in the system, it feels like a disaster. And the one that comes to mind the most is Amenas, of course. Yeah, they changed him. Like they, they they tried to just make him hit for power, and it's like he's like 140 pounds. Like don't let don't make him do that. <laughs> but hey, and the other day, I think he hit like he has like home runs in three consecutive games or something like that. I was just, in the minors. Yeah, I was just reading. So, I mean, it's not like the international league has a. Oh, excuse me, Triple A North. It's not like, you know, they have balls flying out of uh, mm-hmm. the stadiums all over the place, but, you know. I mean, he was pretty awful in AAA for a while, too, and now his line's up to 262, 313, 514. I mean, I'm, I also think of... <laughs> 514. Yeah, it's just like, mm, about that one. Um, yeah, that's a bit of an outlier there. I, mean, I, I think about the same thing with Ahmed as well. I don't know that there was ever one swing change with him, but there was just never any improvement on that front. I, I, overall point, I don't have much faith in this org to, to improve bats. No. Well, suffice to say, I don't think it can get worse than striking out eight times in a single game. So, pretty bad. Pretty mm-hmm. bad. All right, so we'll move well, on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh, what sure, level sure. of metal is that? If diamond oh. 
golden, mm-hmm. platinum, diamond. You, you dropped off for a second, um, but we were discussing while you were gone. We decided it's going to be the adamantium. Adamantium? Okay. <laughs> Nothing well, can break all, that. First of all, I'm glad we're all on the same wavelength mentally <laughs> here so that I can miss the conversation and organically come up with the same idea, you know? <laughs> we all, we are mind. all massive nerds here, Lucas. So. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Where does vibranium fit in? Is that nine strikeouts? I don't know. I mean, what what do you? Can, I, I don't think I don't. Isn't vibranium an alloy though, and and I, adamantium a metal? See, they they, they mishmash this up mm-hmm. in every alt. Like it's different in the MCU versus what it is in the comics versus what it is in different comic series. So I don't know. Right. It, right. It's literally whatever they need at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> whatever they need it to be for that story. Uh huh. That that's correct. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm sure our listeners really care. So. There's going to be, like, one comic book nerd out there, and to be clear, I don't use nerd as a pejorative here. You, you do you. Uh, all all for the nerds. But one comic book nerd out there is going to be like, actually. <laughs> Got him. We're going to get an angry email again. And we're going to lose <laughs> one of our three listeners. We're going to be down to Ringo. It's just Ringo again. It's Ringo and, like, two of our moms, and I guess one of a uh, comic book nerd. So... <laughs> <laughs> Well, Actually, we've... Ringo is the comic book nerd. Maybe. Oh. You know. Ringo, please don't leave us. <laughs> oh, we love you. <laughs> All right, so last week we technically ended our way-too-early draft updates, but we have a pair of mock drafts to discuss this week, one from Jonathan Mayo over at MLB Prospect Pipeline, and then the other from Kylie McDonald over at ESPN, and we love discussing our mock drafts. So... um as we said before, and we'll continue to stress, there's still so much uncertainty this year to begin with, and we still have like a month to go before the draft takes place, so a lot could change. But anyway, Jonathan Mayo, he says uh, he sees the Mets going with Sal Frelick, who we've talked about before, and Kylie sees the Mets going with Matt McClain, a middle, middle infielder from UCLA. Um, McClain hit. 333, 434, 579 this year, nine homers and nine steals. And he's basically like Nick Madrigal, except not as good as Nick Madrigal. Um, he's a middle infielder that's on the smaller size. McLean is five foot eleven. And he has an above average plus hit tool, below average power, plus speed, a really good sense of the strike zone, doesn't strike out much. He can play shortstop, but he's probably better, you know, at second base or maybe even in the outfield. Um, I don't know if it's Stockholm Syndrome or not, but I'm starting to warm up to McLean a little bit. I know we've kind of, like, dreaded it for the last couple of weeks whenever his names come up, but I don't know. Is it me? I, I don't, I'm not getting it. Yeah, it's just budget, uh, magical, like you said, which, yeah. like, never. That's like, like if uh, it probably makes the majors, but how? Uh, it's like if Gavin Cicchini went to college, mm-hmm. probably should have. Which, to be clear, picking Gavin Cicchini out of college is a much better pick than picking Gavin Cicchini out of high school because you can take the low ceiling, high floor guy. You pick the guy who gets there fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. That said. Uh, of course, it's also dependent on who's still on the board, right? Right. But I, uh, I believe in both of these. Wasn't Kowser on the board? Yeah, still? I think that that Baseball America had basically all of the names that the Mets have been connected to in the last couple of weeks. It's like they're trying. It seems anyway by the outsiders who may or may not have you know the inside information that they're triangulating on college bats: Frelick, McLean, Colton Kowser. And the last time the Mets went with a college bat, coincidentally, they also selected with the 10th pick, and they got Michael Conforto back in uh, 2014. But none of these, I would say, are Michael Conforto. None of these guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, you never know, but... Well, Conforto was also kind of underhyped a little yes. bit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Turned out he was a more or less big league-ready hitter out of college. Um and uh, a lot of the warts in his game turned out not to be that big a deal. <laughs> Remember when it took him like a month to debut or two months to debut, whatever it was. Yeah, he was staying at home watching uh, Game 6. 
<laughs> we I don't know if we can talk about it, but it's just funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he, he was doing just, you know, things that you might do in SoCal, that kind of stuff. No, in, in the Pacific Northwest, even worse. Oh, that's true, that's true. It was Oregon. Well, uh, we should probably uh, leave that there so that yes, we don't yes. get an angry call from certain so-and-so. Uh, but, uh, yeah. But it's worth noting anyway, to move on, though, that in Kylie's report, he also mentioned that the Mets were showing a lot of interest in Colson Montgomery, who is a shortstop from Southridge High School in Huntingburg, Indiana. And it could be that the guys that the Mets seem to be honing in on, these college bats, Frelick, McLean, Kowser, they are kind of appropriate for the 10th pick. But they are solid, if unexciting, options. And we could be looking at a situation possibly where the Mets go either slot or maybe a little bit under slot with their first round pick and then go over slot with their second pick if they're, you know, yeah. high on this kid. Um, they did last time they did that was in 2017. They picked David Peterson, he, who was kind of like the pitching version of these guys, a solid, if unexciting pitcher. And they signed him to a slot deal, and then they went about $400,000 over slot with their second-round pick and selected Mark Vientos. Didn't uh, they try to do that in 2019, too, with um, Lenny Torres, I think? Who was drafted in the second round of 2019? That was Josh Wolf. I remember right, there were right, like right. four or five other names that uh, they were trying to get with some of the savings from Batty, and then they ended up throwing it at uh, Allen. I know they had Hunter Barco was a guy that they were yeah, keeping. Yeah, but he, the, he was way later. I think it yeah, was, he was in like the 30th round or something. That they were connected to. Mm. I don't so recall off the top of my head. Yeah, because he's from Poughkeepsie. That would make sense, yeah. He went like two picks before uh, the Mets were around to pick. I, mean, I, don't, I don't hate the idea. I think I'm higher on Kowser than consensus, and I also find Frelick more intriguing than you guys do. Frelick's fine. Like, I, I, I think he'll he's be fine. Yeah. yeah, They're all fine. That's the thing. I think that we were almost hyping ourselves earlier in the year, like, yeah, Mets had the 10th pick after mm-hmm. getting, you know, 14, 19, 20, 21 the last couple of years. So, like, now that the dust is kind of settled and the Mets are, like, an inch or two away from getting the premium guys in the first couple of picks... You know, like, which is kind of like, oh, man. <laughs> I mean, it's... Point being, if you're underwhelmed by everyone here... Well, I, I might be... I guess the point I'm making is that if Kowser was still there, for instance, and they went with this underslot plan, I might be a little annoyed. But if they passed on McLean... Like, if it's, if it, the choice there is McLean, I'd rather go underslot and try to get two prep guys or whatever it turns out to be. I just don't like McLean for whatever reason. I don't like the underslot. It seems, to to steal a a Jeff Pettinostro line, it seems too cute by half. Like, they've tried it many times in the past, and actually getting the guy to the next round, way easier said than done. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you could could theoretically get the guy to the next round. Yeah, in general, I'm I'm much more... Even if it's a guy like McLean that you're not super jazzed about, like, go with the higher-end talent up front. You don't know what's going to be around. I think that's a fair point, too. I mean, I guess my counterpoint is that if you don't think... If you if if there is a minimal gap by your evaluations between the prep guy who you are, quote-unquote, reaching for and all the options remaining on the board, I don't know that it's a, a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't, I won't pretend to, like have an expert read on how to how, like they're it def, it's definitely different in different years there's different tiers in different years some years i'm sure 10 is pretty close to 40 in effect and some years it's a huge gap i don't know what kind of year we're looking at but i i do think there's a scenario where if you have the 40th ranked prospect evaluated as only a little bit worse than the 10th and you can save half the money and mm-hmm. give it to someone who falls, I don't hate that idea. It's like trading back in in other sports in the draft, I think. And obviously you have to have the right guy in mind if you're going to do something like this. And honestly, looking over Montgomery's scouting report, I'm not really all that sold. 
And it's actually kind of weird because the last time they did this was, like we were saying before, it was with Mark Vientos. This is more or less the report on Montgomery. He's a shortstop that's probably going to outgrow short. He's going to be limited to either first or third because he's not a good uh, good runner. He's got a powerful swing, but it's long, so he might not hit for average. That is Mark Vientos. Yeah. A lot of those guys, the reason they fall, yes, you're floating them, but there's also enough warts where... You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I, I think I think like a lot of people, a lot of people talk themselves out of Mark Vientos, and it's looking like some of those concerns were justified. Oh, let's pull up. What year was the Mark Vientos draft? Because my brain is non-functional. I want to say 2017. 17, yeah. 17. They went with Peterson first, and then Vientos. Okay. I mean, so if they had taken, oof, D.L. Hall went one pick after David Peterson. That's a miss. Um, Nate Pearson, 28th. That was actually quite a few. They, that was not. Yeah, okay. So I, I see what you're saying. Taking Vient, If they had actually gone with Vientos at the Peterson spot there, that would have been a woof pick. You know, almost looks like a woof pick as is with... Some of these other names here. No, we'll see what happens. Who knows? I mean, I feel like we're, I don't know if we can expect a stereotypical Sandy Alderson draft. I don't know if we can expect what was going on under Brody Van Wagen in the last two years. Mm. So I think we're all just in the dark as to how they're going to approach all this. Yeah. Stereotypical uh, Sandy Alderson draft is a successful first round pick and then a bunch of garbage. And literally nothing after that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the system is uh, the system is bad. I don't know if he could take that anymore. I don't know if I could take that anymore. But we have about a month until the draft, so you know, I guess we'll see. Move on now to uh, CPBL, KBO, MPB updates. And the Unilines still are not playing. There are still no games in Taiwan. So move on now to the LG Twins. And they had a strong week. They went 5-1, and one, and they launched themselves into first place. Their record is 38-26. and 26. The Wiz and the Landers are both one and a half games behind them. And then the Lions are right there, two games behind. So it's a crowded uh, top of the KBO there. And uh, the Twins and the Wiz both went seven and three in their last ten games, and the Landers and the Lions both went six and four. So all those top teams are playing, you know, some of their best baseball right now. So the standings next week could be pretty different based on anyone, you know, whoever, if anyone, actually uh, stumbles. And in addition to um, the league, the KBO, South Korea also announced the roster for their Olympic team at the Olympics this summer. And there are a couple of twins that are going to be representing the country. First is closer Wusak Go. Uh, he has 19 saves currently and a 178 ERA and 25 in the third innings. Then there's veteran left-hander Wu Chen Cha, who we've talked about before. He's been very up and down um, since, since signing a long, long-term contract with the twins a couple of years ago. He's only been in three games this year so far. He was hurt last year. Um, but he's been good in those three games, so maybe he'll have a strong year. Next is veteran infielder Ji Huan Oh. He's currently hitting 236, 326, 328, which is not good. But he is a career 264, 349, 411 hitter. So I think we can expect the, the average of the slugging percentage to uh, go up a little bit, unless he's completely fallen off a cliff. But I mean, I think he's only turning 31 this year, so he shouldn't be. And then last but not least is Hunsu Kim, and he's going to be the team captain. He is currently hitting 303, 391, 459 for the season in 60 games. And he's a career 321, 402, 494 hitter in the KBO in general. So he is Mr. Dependable, and that is why he's going to be the team captain. Last but not least, pretty low slugging for the, for a good player in Korea usually, right? 
Oh, it's almost 500. I mean, for his career, it's 494. It's not bad. Yeah. And he's not really a slugger slugger. That's true. That's true. Just the ball I mean, flies there. Oh, yes. <laughs> Last but not least are the Occult Swallows, and they went 2-1 and one this week because the, 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 the teams had a couple of days off at the beginning of the week because of interleague play. And Japan also announced their uh, roster for the Olympics. And the only team that didn't have a player to be selected are the Chiba Latte Marines, so poor them. <laughs> but Tetsu Yamada and Munetaka Murakami, they are going to be the two Swallows representing the team. And, you know, both of them are kind of no-brainers, especially Murakami. Uh, he is hitting right now 280, 428, 621 with a league-leading 21 homers. And Yamada is hitting... A much improved from a couple of weeks ago, 680, excuse me, 6, 268. Yeah, I was going to say, if his batting yeah. average starts with a 6, <laughs> something has happened. 268, 363, 549 batting line with 18 homers. So he has basically gotten back into his form with the exception of stolen bases, which he's not doing at all, which is... Unfortunate because stolen bases are fun. Mm. Any guy that can steal a lot is, you know, it's fun to watch him. All right, so now let's move on and look at our affiliates. And it was a bad week for the system as a whole. And, you know, two weeks ago. And unfortunately, that trend has continued this past week. So, looking at Syracuse first, they came to the week with a six-game losing streak. And they lost Tuesday, they lost Wednesday, they lost Thursday, they lost Friday. They had Saturday's game postponed, so they technically didn't lose, but they didn't (laughs) win either. And they went to uh, war one last time with the World Riders this afternoon. And they were winning when I first started writing down my notes for the show. And then like an hour or two later, when I started doing tomorrow's form report, I noticed that the win total is the same. And I was like, what the hell? And I went back and I looked, and sure enough, they lost. Scranton Wilkesbury walked off in the bottom of the ninth and won 4-3. So Syracuse has now lost every single game in the last two weeks. And they have a 14-game losing streak. That's bad. Channeling their inner Diamondbacks, one could say. Yeah, that's they are... 3 and 14 in the month of June and 11 and 30 on the season, which is 18 games behind the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rev Riders. So I think they'll, they'll make that up real quick. I don't have any worries about that. 18 games, nothing. I'm surprised Scranton's that good, honestly. I'm trying to think of like, is the Yankee system even that good on the high end? Oh, they have Davey Garcia. Davey's been them. bad. Yeah, he's not been good, too. I think the Yankees always have good stash guys, though. He yeah. was solid today. Was he? Well, Davey, Davey's, I, I know, because I own him on, like, four teams, and everywhere I'm like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, another guy who had a uh, line this week is Steven Nogasek. He came Oof. into the week. He came into the week with a 270 ERA. And even that was a little bit high because he got lit up on June 11th for three earned runs. And after everything is said and done, his ERA ballooned this week to a 5.79, thanks to an appearance on Tuesday. He gave up seven earned runs in an inning plus. You want to you want to hear the worst part about that Tuesday game? Of the pitcher, because uh, I believe I did the farm report for that game. Of the pitchers who pitched for the Mets that day, he <laughs> had the best ERA. <laughs> On the season. Yeah, uh, like, pitching is, is not one of their strengths. Yeesh. Although, honestly, pitching is not one of the strengths of anybody in the AAA East. The league, like we were saying before, crazy offense-oriented. 4.88 runs scored per game on average. So, yeah, AAA is rough. Yep. Got that international league ball going. Um. Obviously, a bunch of Mets have been rehabbing Syracuse this week, and most of them did pretty well for themselves. Albert Omora, before he got activated on Saturday, he went 4 for 12 with three doubles, so that's pretty good. Jeff McNeil went uh, 6 for 15 with two doubles and a homer. Conforto, he got into only one game today, Sunday. He went 1 for 4 with a double. 
Uh, same thing with Nemo. He only got into one game so far, went one for two. Um, the two of them combined, they left four guys on base, so I think they're going to really have to work on that, improve their left on base before they uh, are fully ready to rejoin the Mets. Because mm. four, not enough. Yeah, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta just forget how to play the game. Yeah. All right, well, we'll move to another team now that's been struggling, the Binghamton Rumble Ponies. Um, though they were not struggling as bad as Syracuse. <laughs> they only came into this week having gone three and four the week before and were on a, a two-game skid. Um, this week, though, they went one and four with a game postponed because of rain. So their losing streak was only six games in a row before they finally won this afternoon. And they are now 12-28 and 28 on the year, which is... Unfortunately, back in dead last in the AA Northeast-Northeast after escaping for a week or two. And looking at that team, I think it's, it's a very simple reason why they're losing so much. Their pitching sucks and their hitting sucks. <laughs> I mean, it's basic. Uh, it's a da- bad combination, you know? It's a bold yeah. strategy. Let's see if it pays off for them. And we were talking before about the Sandy Alderson drafts, you know, being successful with the first pick. And then pretty much having nothing else after that. And that is a big reason why mm. Binghamton is what it is. Was McNeil, really, uh, was McNeil an Alderson uh, 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 pick? Mm, yes. 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 I want to yeah. say 2011 yeah. or 12. It would have to be. Yeah. yeah. Trying to think of like any non-first Alderson picks that have been worth much. I mean, there's... Pete. Pete. Yeah, of course. There's been a, a couple of hits, like, here and there. Obviously, uh, DeGrom. Lugo. No. Uh, DeGrom was, DeGrom? was uh... He was DeGrom last was, year. Yeah. Last Manaya. year. Yeah, okay. Lugo. Lugo's Lugo, a good call, yeah. sure. And there's a couple here and there, but... Of course, like, he's not going to go over literally, like, a hundred <laughs> with how many... But... The vast majority is not. Hey, if the Syracuse Mets can go 0 for 14, then Sandy can go 0 for 100. I do see that Fietas has his line almost up to league average. Which yeah, he's been really good. how horrific he was earlier. Yeah, he was, uh, let's see, what did he do? He slowly but surely digging himself out of that hole. He went 7 to 16 with a double and two homers that week. So he got bumped up from 208, 265, 415 to a... Uh, much warmer, 238, 296, 475. And he's hitting 238, 318, 538. That's a 129 weighted. He's still striking out 30% of the time, though. Yeah, it's trending in the right direction, at least. If these trends continue... Basically, he's the only guy of note on the Rumble Ponies. I mean... Yeah. Excuse you, friend of the podcast, Carlos There's him, there's Cortez, there's Mangum, and I guess catcher Hayden Zenger. But, you know, half the reason we follow Cortez and Mangum is because they're like circus sideshow guys. Because they're memes. Yeah. And Zenger, he's having some success right now, but his bat pip is literally 500. And I don't think that's sustainable. So. Is he the best player of all time in that case? Like, That's true. Those are the only two outcomes. Either it is not sustainable, or he is the best player of all time. Like so, I guess so, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, there is a chance. I, mean, I, I wish Jake Mangum's line was more Jake Mangum, but it's not quite as Jake Mangum as I thought it would be. No, 230, he, 256, 356. Like, he's walking just enough and hitting for just enough power where it's not totally absurd. It's just regular bad. He got off to that pretty good start with Binghamton the first week or so, and then he just kind of... I want him Went to be hitting to like I want him to be hitting like two seventy, two eighty, three hundred. <laughs> right, like that. That's that's the Jake, Jake Mangum I want to see. Only a little singles. more power than that. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so I looked up BAPIP on fan. Like I just went to careers on Fangraphs and looked up the highest BAPIP ever. Mm-hmm. And Tom In a single Mc- season or career? No, like for someone's career. Mm. Tom McCreary ran a 390 BAPIP and only had a 110 WRC plus for his career That's in 800 games. And Jorge Alfaro is second in MLB history. Huh. With a 380. Ty Cobb is third. He the ball hard. I could see that. Yeah, that's really what it is. It's a bunch of, like, 
1910s players and stuff. <laughs> that's like because it's back then it was all just like hitting the ball on the ground and everyone mm-hmm. was fast. <laughs> There's a bunch of gentlemanly baseball players and then <laughs> Jorge Alfaro. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, if these guys were facing the Binghamton pitchers, they'd probably hit for an even better average because Binghamton pitching is trash. It's so bad. Yeah. I mean, you have Adam Aller, Luck Rennie, Tony DeBrell, Josh Walker, and Cole Gordon are Binghamton's main starters, and there's not a name in the bunch that you could count on at all. This is literally a Japanese bootleg baseball game yeah. make-believe <laughs> make list of players. Make-believe players might even do better. I don't know. They're really bad. Well, another team that has been pretty bad, unfortunately, are the Brooklyn Cyclones. Yeah, I'm a little surprised at this one. They split their series against the Wilmington Blue Rocks. They went three and three, and they are now thirteen and twenty-six on the year, which is eleven games behind the Hudson Valley Renegades in the High A East Northeast. And the Brooklyn Bats cooled off two weeks ago when they returned home from Jersey from Lakewood, and we were all thinking maybe Coney Island would help them out. And sure enough, they they got hot again. Uh, Mauricio, he went 0-17 with three walks in that series against the Renegades at home. And this week, he went 10-26 for with two doubles, a triple, a home run, two walks, and a strikeout. And and only one strikeout over the course of an entire week. That's something impressive for Mauricio. No, absolutely. Uh, Brett Beatty in that series against the Renegades at home, he went 2-18 for with a homer, a walk, and five strikeouts. And this past week... Against Wilmington, he went 7 for 23 with a double, a triple, four walks, and six strikeouts. And then Francisco Alvarez went 3 for 16 with a double, a homer, two walks, and seven strikeouts in that home series. And this past week went 8 for 22 with three doubles, a homer, four walks, and six strikeouts. Jeez, dude. So. Alvarez is legit, man. He is legit. Yeah, he's hitting. He's good. Uh, I was I was uh, I was just gonna go like full Beatty pill here and say Beatty is now the best prospect in the system, but no, it, it's Alvarez. Yeah, no, he's he's two years younger and uh... a catcher, and I mean this was this just when Beatty was literally like batting six hundred over a two week stretch or whatever it was. <laughs> so, um, no, it's Alvarez. Like we were resorting things now. It's what like. Alvarez, Beatty, and then Mauricio, I guess. Probably. Yeah. Of the three, yeah. I still don't believe in Mauricio, but I don't want to have that argument again. <laughs> well, he's doing, if he keeps hitting like this, yeah. then that'll uh, change his stock a bit. Mm-hmm. I still think he has a little trouble from as a left-handed hitter. Like, the swing isn't there yet. Like, No, 100% it is not there. Like, I think that's kind of what's holding him back right now to being like that complete prospect, but also like I still think he, I, he strikes me as like the perfect trade piece because a I don't think he's a six or seven, but b he's the kind of player where somebody thinks he's a six or seven, and they'll trade they'll take him as a centerpiece in a big trade. That's that's the guy who I think if the Mets have to trade someone. Yeah. Like, the three, that's the guy who I think they're sending. Yep. Yeah, I mean, Beatty is just, he's pretty much the, 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 the warts that you worried about him look smoothed out. Mm-hmm. And he looks like he's just going to hit. And Alvarez is a catcher, like we've been, you guys said. And then Mauricio, his best position, or his current position, is currently occupied by Francisco Lindor. So, like... Even if you can move him around, and obviously he can play other positions, and that's fine, but also keep him at shortstop and see if anyone thinks that he's their centerpiece. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let him play I mean, shortstop, and then someone can knock on your door and is like, I think he's the next superstar. We will give you something good for him. His current position is occupied. His current position and not long term position is occupied by Francisco Lindor. His best possible long term position is the same one Beatty plays. Yeah, and then after that, you're looking at shoving him in the corner outfield, where he's a much less interesting prospect. Yep. And Beatty looks like I don't think he's going to be a Gold Glove third baseman, but I don't think he's going to be a disaster either. I don't. I don't think Mauricio would looks be yeah. like he'd be any better at third, or and and definitely nowhere near good enough to make up for the difference in bat. 
Yeah, no, yeah, no, I don't think so. I think Mauricio might have better like reactions and might be able to cover some more. Oh, he's a better around. athlete. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, the the biggest thing with with Beatty, like Thomas said, he has worked on the things that he needed to work on, and he is yeah, much. Like- much more athletic looking. Not that he was ever fat or anything like that, but he just looks much more athletic and toned. And, you know, I had no problems with the defense. And he's also still, you know, at the, at the bottom of the minor league. So he still has two years, give or take, you know, and, and 150, 200 games, whatever, to, yeah. you know, get some more reps under his belt. And it's 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 like... The swing was a little loopy before, and now it's not. Like he's just kind of like he took he took the steps he needed to take to be at the top of the system. And yep, I'm not. I don't need much more convincing to be excited about him now. And I think with the Mets and the way that they talked in the off season about how they really covet the top of the system because they know how thin it is. Like I don't think they're lying. Like I think they actually <laughs> do believe that. Like I don't think that was a bluff. Like I think they really do believe that. And I think that he's positioned himself to be one of the guys that they are going to be really protective of, like, unless something crazy comes along. Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano. Yeah. <laughs> Ditel Marte is the one I'm, I dream of. Mm. He will probably take two. Yeah. Speaking of dreams, do you guys have any idea who is leading the Cyclones in home runs? Joe Gennord? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Ken? I know Mauricio had the lead a couple days ago. It's not Mauricio. It is not Joe Gennord. It's Gennord? Okay, well, shit. It is not. This man came into the last series with four homers, and then he hit one Friday night, he hit one Saturday night, and he hit two this afternoon. Oh, God. <laughs> and now Luke Ritter is oh. leading the Brooklyn Cyclones. Oh, Lord. Get out of here. <laughs> eight, eight home runs, baby. He basically has a 200 bat hit this week, so it's the only way that he was able to get <laughs> on base. <laughs> and getting out. <laughs> so, yes. Our uh, 5'11", 190-pound gritty infielder, Luke Ritter, Hashtag has more Brady. home runs than Brett Beatty, has more home runs than Ronnie Mauricio. Clearly we're Joe talking Gen- about the wrong prospects. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. That was not something that I saw coming at any point. That's really funny. Yeah. All right, now we will move on to really the only thing that keeps me going, St. Lucie Mets. They went 3-3 three and three this week against the second-place Hammerheads. And at one time, Jupiter tied them first, but they never actually lost possession of first place. And now with the series done, St. Lucie is 23-19, and 19, which is two games ahead of the Hammerheads. And JT Ginn, he pitched this afternoon. Um, I don't want to say that it was his first clunker, but he was not really that great statistically. No numbers on a page. He went five innings, allowed three runs with four hits. He allowed a walk. He hit a batter. And he struck out four. Um, he was a bit more hittable today than he has been in previous starts. But honestly, it's probably because this was his second consecutive start against the Hammerheads. And, you know, they have a little bit more of a book on him. They know what he looks like. And, you know, he lost the pitcher lost his uh, initial advantage. Uh, fastball sat around 91, topped out at 93.6. He struck out two batters with it, one swinging, one looking. That's what we like to see. He got his other two strikeouts on a slider and a curveball. Both of them were swinging. Um, he's been incorporating the changeup into his mix a lot more now, these last couple of games, and reserving the slider for his strikeouts. So, it's good to see that the, the, this changeup is improving. He's getting a lot of swings and misses with it because um, that was always like a pitch like, you know, he's working on it, not advanced as the slider was. So if he can continue working on that pitch and, you know, improve on it, then he is now a guy that has an above average fastball, an above average slider, and then possibly an average or better changeup in addition to, you know, the, the occasional curveball and, you know, stuff. So... Did he have, did he, was that similar to his college philosophy? I don't remember what he said. 
I think he's sat, like a tick or two, a tick or two down. Yeah, he mm. sat, he sat, sat. Yeah, he sat around like ninety two, ninety three, and could you know get it up there to ninety seven, which is not something that he's shown yet. But I don't think he really needs to be reaching back all the way and blowing it past you know eighteen year olds <laughs> that are in you know the uh, yeah treat this like a rehab essentially. Low A, mm. yeah. You just gotta get through the season healthy. I don't really care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. like yeah. what the, what the actual outings look like. Like obviously I don't want him to get blown up every time he goes out there, but like if he's like doing stuff like this and also fine and healthy, then that's a win for me. I mean you would, you would hope that the velocity would be all the way back by the end of the year. Yeah, like I, if his velocity is a tick or two a little low now, okay. Right, this isn't, you know, a year and a half from now. Then I would be concerned. But. Yes, yes, if we're in next year and all that stuff and spring training and he's yep. still only throwing in low 90s, we could have this conversation. But I mean, like you said, it's more or less a rehab assignment. Oh, yeah, this whole, the rest of the, like, not the rest of the year, that's a long time, but, like, just be healthy, man. Like, mm-hmm. with uh, arms, he could get here kind of quick, like, if he's good. Speaking of good, Alex Ramirez, he's he struggled a bit, but he is starting to get acclimated to things and had a pretty good week. He went 9-4-28 with two doubles, a triple, and a homer, and then two walks and six strikeouts. It's what we like to see. Excellent. And it's crazy if you think about it that Pico Armstrong was the Mets' top prospect, outfield prospect, despite the fact that you know he was coming to the season 19-year-old kid having never played a professional game before. There were a couple of outfielders in between PCA and Ramirez on our list, mainly Freddie Valdez and Khalil Lee, but Valdez is gone now, and Khalil Lee is not really having a good season, so is Alex Ramirez now effectively the Mets' top outfield prospect at this point? It might be. It depends how much you want to hedge on the injury for PCA. Yeah. I would understand people saying yes and no to this question. I mean, the real takeaway is that, goddamn, the outfield depth in the system is bad. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's rough. It, it's sad that the actual answer might be Carlos Cortez at the moment. <laughs> oh, that's true. He is an outfield there. I forgot. Right. That's like, really stretching the definition of outfield. Enough. Right, yeah. right, of course. But that that's my point, though, that the fact that there's an argument that Carlos Cortez is, because Ramirez is in A ball mm-hmm. five years away, three mm-hmm. years away, Cortez, and everyone else is hurt or bad or lower. And yeah, if we're talking depth, like, helps the Mets, then he, Cortez might be the closest guy. Damn, if Tebow didn't retire. Yeah, man. <laughs> oh, man. If He's Tebow didn't retire, he'd be an outfielder on, the, on a first place uh, baseball team. Oh, damn, you're right. When was the first day that they had, like, the full capacity uh, at, at City Field? Mm-hmm. Was it last weekend? Yeah. or yeah. Were, were they open last weekend, or did they do it for tomorrow? I can't remember. Well, I don't know, but he, w- he would definitely be playing. He would make his debut in front of a packed house God, at I home. Hate- I hate Alexander Ramirez so much because Fangraphs always sends me to the Angels yeah. prospect instead. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of hate. Honestly. Yeah, I mean, for those who don't know, there's a very similar aged DSL signing <laughs> outfielder for the Angels with a similar profile named Alexander Ramirez. Well, Ramirez is good, and hopefully... Yeah, he's interesting for sure. Yeah. Um, another guy that I guess is an outfielder now that could be in the conversation, not really sure what to even call him right now, is Jalen Palmer. He went 6-for-27 with a double, a triple, and, you know, 6-for-27 isn't great. But he did have four walks and nine strikeouts, which is a solid ratio. Although nine strikeouts in, in six games is a little high. But he also had seven stolen bases in eight attempts, which is impressive. 
And I know we haven't really talked about him too much so far this year because he really hasn't stood out too much on the year he's hitting. It's a weird batting line, actually. This is a very Jake Mangum batting line. <laughs> yeah, he's hitting 230, 361, 294. Too many walks for Jake Mangum. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 26 walks, 45 strikeouts, which is a little bit on the high side, and yeah. 15 stolen bases in 34 games. He was, he's another guy who got off to a horrific start and has mm-hmm. clawed it back, but I, I, I was getting ready for his stock to blow through the roof this year. I think there's a lot of potential for that to happen this, this year. And instead we're getting kind of the Shervian Newton season almost with less power. Yeah, the thing that doesn't make me worried is that he, last year, he, I mean, 2019, he played shortstop and third base with Kingsport. Right. And I always, I always thought he could be a solid outfielder. And the Mets are actually doing that now. And he is splitting his time between three different positions. He's playing second base this year. He's playing third base this year and center field. So. I'm fine with that. A lot of times you see, you hear about guys that, you know, they take the struggles from the field onto the, you know, to the plates or vice versa. They take the struggles at the plate to the field. I think this could be a situation where that's kind of happening because on top of having to learn how to hit better, he's also having to learn to play center field, which is a complicated, you know, kind of an important position. So I would say I think his path to the majors is a utility guy like that. Yeah, probably. I think what they're doing, like, it's smart, but also, like you said, it could be adversely affecting him, so. I mean, I, I, this would be an interesting conversation to have with, someone who works in player dev more than us, but like obviously there's stress put on a prospect learning a new position, but how significant is that stress based on the degree of the position change, right? If he was going from being a primarily a shortstop to playing second and third, maybe that's not as much of an excuse, but going to the outfield, yeah, that's pretty significant. And then going to the outfield on top of the second and third with some second and third sprinkled in as well, that feels like a... I, it, it almost feels like they should have done one or the other, not, hey, go learn how to play center field while also playing these other infield positions still. Yeah, it's, if you're going to commit, then just commit. Yeah. yeah. Make him your out, make yeah, him your center focus, fielder. Because, yeah. I mean, he's, he's literally coming to work every day not knowing exactly what he's going to be doing. <laughs> Probably yeah, not the best. Also, even though he's been, you know, he's been, he played in 2019 a, a full or a half season after getting drafted, but, and I think he also was in 2018 as well, but a little bit, but he's also like a Northeast kid. So he's also a bit more raw as compared to some mm-hmm. of the other guys that are down there. A lot of them are newly drafted players themselves, or they've been, you know, coming from the DSL or the GCL and kind of have more playing time under their belts and, and whatever else. I mean, if, if Palmer came home for COVID and everything last year, you know, not much is going on around here for quite a while. And then obviously in the fall and winter, it gets cold. Can't really do much baseball either. That's so true. That's a good point. I don't know how salient of a point that is, or I don't know how much that actually translates, you know, as professionally or whatever. But it, I think it is something to keep in mind, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, I I think those points are why if if Palmer winds up with a similar line to what he has right now on the whole season, I think we would be less out on him than we were when Shavian Newton did something similar. Agreed. Yeah, there's like, there's more time and more. I there's other factors more, like there's factors fact, at play there that's yeah. like, oh yeah, this could just take longer. Whereas Newton was like, mm, nah, that that this just doesn't work. Yeah, it's like, come on, dude. <laughs> Man, Shavian Newton would have been so fun if he was actually good. Yeah, I liked him. He was one of my guys that I was like, ooh, future. Would have like Javi Baez-esque. Mm-hmm. That would have been super fun. Well, unfortunately, we can't have nice things. <laughs> well, that's a good, I guess, segue to, oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> we can't have oh, nice boy. things. Oh, uh, This guy is actually not too obscure, and I think he did pretty good um, for himself. Uh, this week, back in 2015, he this this guy had himself a pretty good good week, and he came home. He came back to the Mets. Kirk Neuenheis. Hey! Started the season on the Mets' major league roster, and then he got traded to the Angels in mid-May, but then they DFA'd him, 
a little bit, couple days, well, a couple of weeks later, and the Mets picked him back up and sent him to Las Vegas. And in his first couple of games back in the system, he went seven for seventeen with a double, a homer, excuse me, a double, a triple, three home runs, eight RBI, no walks, and a strikeout. He was fun. Good old Kirk. I remember um, recap. I got to do the recap on that three home run game he had. I always loved him. Uh-huh. <laughs> him hitting three I, home runs in a game is hysterical. Yeah. I always say that I've never seen a swing look less natural than his. <laughs> yeah. Are you aware that he played football? Yes, he did play football, yes. believe it or not. Uh, ironically, I don't even think uh, the three home run game is his best moment as a Met. It's the next home run. The what? The one he hit in Washington? Yeah, off Papple, Papple bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Where he just like I think it was that was part of the huge comeback, right? Yeah, that was the game where Harvey didn't look good, and then that ball got by Lagaris in center field for like an inside the park grand slam against Harvey. Like Robles hit a line drive to center, it bounced past uh, Lagaris in center, and then I think this was also around the time when Harvey was talking about shutting it down. Mets are down seven one, come back, tie it. Drew Storen goes and breaks his hand. And yeah. then Kirk takes Papelbon deep over the right center field fence. Good old Kirk. Great. He was like too. he had some pretty good major league seasons. Like he, he wasn't did. totally like Yeah. He wasn't he wasn't like a fortieth round pick that came out of nowhere. He was a, a third round pick in the yeah, he was one, like rather two thousand eight draft. Um drafted out of Azusa Pacific University. That was a D two school, so you know, kind of he was he was internally developed uh, Kelly McBinney here. Yeah, I mean he, he you could definitely say you, no one would have seen him coming, but he was you know a well regarded guy. Um, during that third round, really, he was one of the better guys. Kid, Craig, Craig Kimbrell was the best. Uh, he was the the biggest hit from that third round in 2018. The Braves picked him 96th overall. But there, you know, a couple of other guys, and no one is really that much better than Kirk. Uh, Danny Espinosa was selected, Jordy Mercer, Vince Worley, and then Kirk, of course. Those are the only guys that had any kind of meaningful MLB careers in that third round. And it's a really good thing that, that Kirk had a, a pretty solid MLB career, because the rest of that 2008 draft was rough. Yeah. They had three picks in the first round, and they picked Ike Davis, Reese Havens, and Brad Holt. That uh, <laughs> didn't exactly work out. Second round, they had Javier Rodriguez. Did not really work out. Then they picked Kirk, and then rounding out the next ten, the, the rounding out the next uh, couple to get to the tenth round, they picked Sean Ratliff, Doc Doyle, Josh Satin, Michael Herbert, Eric Campbell, Eric Bjolak, and Brian Valenzuela. Um, Colin McHugh was also drafted that year in, in the 18th round. I'm not going to, you know, say that he had a successful Mets career because he was traded so early. So basically... For an 18th round, no, you take that. Oh, yeah, yeah. But basically, Kirk was the second most valuable player in that entire draft. Ike was the first, but then Kirk. Uh, 5.8 B-War and then 2.9 B-War. That tracks. And then not to get too off track here, but I kind of fell into a hole and just looking at drafts. And Omar's drafts at the end of the 2000s, I know were not good, but holy shit, they were not good. (laughs) (laughs) I was looking, I I looked at every single player. I, I started to break things down by the amount of value that they produced as Mets as opposed to like, like a McHugh, you know, who produced most of his value elsewhere. So I couldn't include stuff like that, but. Basically, over the last five years, basically from 2005 to 2010, the Mets produced about 100 war out of the draft in total. By himself, Jacob deGrom is 42.8 out of that 100. Jesus. (laughs) Omar kind of saved all of his (laughs) kids for the 20... That was 2010? Yeah. Yeah, like Harvey, DeGrom. Yeah, Daniel Murphy had a 13.2 with the Mets. Harvey, 11.6. John Neese, 8.4. Stephen Matz, 8.3. Lucas Duda, 7.5. A couple of other guys that have been below, you know, 5 or for their careers. But 
man. That is, uh, oof. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Kirk was mainly a, a quad A kind of guy, you know, bounced up and down. Last year, he was on a major league roster, it was 2017. Then last time he was in organized baseball, was 2018. And then the last time he played profession, uh, he played baseball, uh, was 2019 when he was a player on Thomas's favorite team, Long Island Ducks. <laughs> <laughs> And he retired after a season with the Ducks, and he got hired by his alma mater to be a hitting coach. And obviously the the 2020 season didn't happen because of obvious reasons, but they kept him for 2021, and the team did go 33-10. and 10. Uh, They got eliminated in the D2 Western, Regional, uh, Western Regionals by Western Oregon, and they hit a very impressive 331, 417, 600 which is well above the D2 average of 259, 336, 407. So obviously, you know, there were some good hitters on that team, but good coaching as well. Good, good hitting coaching. Yeah, you know, he always struck me as like a reasonably intelligent person. He just didn't have the bat speed to catch up in a very long swing. I'm sure if he had more physical skills there, it would have been. Yeah. I do find it funny that, um, the guy who I think is the most unnatural swing in the <laughs> hitting yeah. teaches hitting. Oh, it's working. Good for him. Good for Kirk. Mm-hmm. I found the headline I used for that three-homer recap. Kirk doing high schools where no Met has gone before. Uh-huh. Good job, 2015, Lucas. Very well done. <laughs> Subtle and perfect and good. Oh, this is when we still had reaction images in the recaps, too. So I've got actual Shatner in here as well. Perfect. Perfect. Oh, we don't do that anymore? That just shows No, no we don't. Chorus doesn't let us. It's a whole thing. Uh, oh, well. Stupid Chorus. Uh-huh. Now, speaking of stupidity, let's move on to Will Ponder of the Week. Oh, boy. And Will Ponder of the Week goes to a man who is a known buffoon in baseball circles, Mr. Chris O'Leary. Better known oh. as quote unquote the pain guy on his you know Twitter handle and fan graphs and Reddit and Amazing Avenue too and wherever else he uh, goes and I'm not gonna say that he is a complete shyster and snake oil salesman because he does have some ideas that have some merit at their most basic basic truths but. You know, a, a broken clock is right twice a day, and then it's wrong for 23 hours and 59 minutes and 58 seconds. And Steve, you're bro- you're hedging way too much. This guy <laughs> can go fuck himself. He is a gigantic piece of shit. He is a gigantic... So basically, for anyone that doesn't really know about the pain guy, Chris O'Leary, he's known for being a shameless self-promoter. He basically predicts every modern pitcher is somehow flawed using very... Comical evidence, like like except gifts. Justin Verlander, who also got Tommy John surgery <laughs> anyway. Hey, hey, we don't talk about that. But you know, basically, he acts like his he he says you know 100 percent of pitchers are going to get injured, and then when that one random pitcher does get injured, he's like, see, 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 I predicted it. Um, one of the funnier Penguin sagas that uh, I remember is when he sent Tommy Pham some unsolicited <laughs> advice. Oh, God. And Tommy Pham was basically like, leave me alone. I want nothing to do with you. Nothing that you've told me has been helpful. I have real coaches. <laughs> I have real coaches. They are the ones that help me break out, not you. But anyway, but these are basically clown things compared to, uh, I think, his, his, how would I even say it? His peace de la resistance is that there's a big conspiracy by the baseball coaching industrial complex to silence him because he and he alone uncovered that improper pitching mechanics can cause blood clots, which then can cause strokes and death. And when when Tyler Skaggs died a couple of years ago, he basically used this kid's death to promote his theory and his website. And he justifiably got shit on for that because he he basically like started the whole spiel with, listen, I don't have the toxicology reports and I don't know anything about his medical history, but 
But then, look at the pictures. Yeah. Like, it's a the W. Chelsea, he did the, the same Tom thing when Jan Jan Parker Harkahar had a stroke in the mm. bullpen. So, unfortunately, the other day, a pitcher from George Mason University, a 20-year-old kid, sang Hoback. He died. Um, he had some injuries earlier this year and then underwent Tommy John surgery last week and then died from complications earlier this week. And... When it was brought to his attention, Mr. Payne guy was back on his bullshit. And at least he learned his lesson this time and he didn't stop, uh, he didn't start posting links to his website all over the place. But, you know, he's, uh, he's just asking questions about things now, you know? He's not saying that there's a direct link between his theory. Uh, but he's just asking questions. His whole point this time around was that, hey, if my theories about Tommy John are right, Tommy John's going up and any surgery has risk. And therefore, it's baseball's fault. Mm-hmm. His, this pisses me off on like 17 different levels. And the worst of it, he just tweets through the bullshit. People will say like, listen, dude, someone just died. Have a little respect. And his response will be bullshit about, you know, why doesn't Major League Baseball have respect about the epidemic that it's causing? Like, dude, shut the fuck up. People will be like, like, oh, it's not the time the kid just died. And he'll be like, when is the time? Uh It's never the time to talk about the truth. (laughs) I mean, this pisses me off as someone who's adjacent to medicine. This pisses me off as someone who's undergone multiple orthopedic surgeries. This pisses me off as someone whose job it is is to do machine learning and make predictions for medicine. Like, he does all of these things wrong on top of being a gigantic piece of human garbage. Yep, that is basically in a nutshell. Uh, I, I do want to say him coining the, the term Tommy John twist. Um, right. <laughs> sounds like a fucking dance move. The, the only going to be the, the hottest dance craze of like 2025. The only good thing that came out of all of his bullshit was the Tommy John twist, which then we further, when was it, like pizza in like 2016, yeah. further analyzed. And in addition <laughs> to the Tommy John twist, we also discovered the Spooty Bugger spin. <laughs> I forgot about the Spooty Bugger spin. <laughs> so, that was the best one by far. My god. I, I, I like got super annoyed with this guy at one point and stopped following him, so I never even saw how he explained away Justin Verlander's Tommy John surgery. Oh, he doesn't. He just never acknowledges it again. Nope. I like, I'm on his timeline right now, and he's still retweeting anytime Matt Harvey has a bad outing. Right, Ali, that's true, nothing. He will go back, like, years and years and years. The afternoon this kid died, he was he spent three hours going back to yeah. tweets from, like, 2015 and retweeting himself. Mm-hmm. Like, what the fuck? So, that is Will Pinery at its finest. At its core. Mm-hmm. All right, well, if anyone has any questions, comments, whatever, you can send us an email at our email address from complex2queens at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and shoot us questions there. I am at Steve Seiper. Lucas is at Elvahos343. Ken is at Ken1191. And Thomas is at SZN. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Rate and review it. And, of course, thank you for listening. And we'll 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 be back next week. So until then, love the Mets, love the Mets.